The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Um, hey, welcome to Genesis. If you're here for the first time, uh, special thanks for coming out on some snow-filled roads. I'm uh, assuming you got here safely. Um, we are going back to uh, a series that we started uh, this past fall called Jesus. And uh, it is a walk through, or a journey through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And tonight we find ourselves in uh, chapter 2. Uh, before I get going, I just this is a, a big night because uh, we have revamped uh, what we call life groups uh, at Genesis. We've been doing life groups uh, a certain way for the past two years. And um, over the past few months, uh, the life group team and myself have been working Real hard to think through strategically and intentionally, how can we get uh, everyone from the Genesis community engaged in a life group? And life groups are just small communities of people uh, who are doing life together. They're learning together, they're loving together, they're serving together, uh, they're praying together, they're coming alongside one another and literally just doing life together. And uh, one of the things we're committed to is making sure that if this is your place, if this is your community, if this is your home, that um, you would have an opportunity uh, an easy opportunity uh, to make sure that you are part of something called a life group. And so tonight, uh, we're entering into a two-week time frame uh, where you'll have the opportunity. All life groups are starting brand new, and tonight is the night that uh, you can sign up for uh, the different life groups that we have uh, throughout, uh, throughout the week. We actually have life groups that meet pretty much Monday through Thursday, and we don't have any that meet on uh, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. And some in Boston, some in Lexington, some in Woburn, some in Burlington. Um, and back there tonight, uh, all of the signups are done via the web. Um, so you can sign up tonight on your way out or just visit, I think it's lifegroups.genesisthejourney.com uh, is the website you can go to. And uh, you can get signed up for whatever life group um, you'd like to be involved with. So please make sure you do that uh, tonight or sometime over the next, uh, next week or so as we uh, roll out. Um, we started, like I said, a few months ago uh, with Mark 1, verse 1. And this is what Mark 1, verse 1 says. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right from the very get-go, Mark, the author of his story here, the gospel, uh, according to Mark, wants us to know one thing. This story is going to be about Jesus. He is the central, he is the main character. Everything that happens is focused around the person of Jesus. And right from the very beginning, he identifies, he wants the audience, his first century audience to know, as well as the 21st century audience to know who Jesus is. He is God's son, and he is the Messiah, meaning he is the Savior, the Christ, the one that humanity had been waiting for for so long to come and rescue and redeem and reconcile people. And in verse 1, Mark says, this whole story is going to be about the person of Jesus. And so as I encouraged you a few weeks back, as we go through this story, and I hope you'll be reading it throughout um, uh, the next few weeks, you can certainly track along or just read the Gospel of Mark as many times as you can. And start asking good questions. If Jesus is God's son, if he's really the Messiah, what's he like? How does he interact with people, and who are the people that he actually interacts with? What will he say? What will he do? Will he hang out with marginalized people, or will he hang out with the very well-to-do people? Start asking questions. Why did he come? Is humani- are we in trouble? Or did he actually come to save or to rescue? If this is God's son, I often wonder, is he anything like his father? Or is he completely, totally different? So as you walk through the story, be asking questions. Mark makes very clear from chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus, he's the hero of the story. He's the heart of the story. It's what it's all about. He's God's son and he's savior. He's peppered throughout the entire story of Mark's gospel. And we have the opportunity to get to know this person, Jesus. And what's really amazing is People who come in contact with Jesus, their life is its just not the same. They experience a transformation. And tonight I'm excited to, the story that we are going to uh, dive into is a story that is just rich with imagery, 
It's got this an amazing, engaging storyline. It's a story of some friends, their heart for their buddy who can't walk. He's paralyzed. Then there's a bunch of religious people who are not really happy with what Jesus is doing, with what Jesus is saying. And then you've got a bunch of faces in, in the crowd, crowded literally into the small little home. And every face has a story. And I can only imagine the faces in the crowd that day. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? They were gathering to be around this person, Jesus. So this is the story we're going to jump into tonight. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm excited to get going through the Gospel of Mark again. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive right in. Father, I thank you uh, for getting everyone that's here uh, safely. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as a community uh, to make a big deal of you uh, through worship. And Father, now I pray through just taking a look at your word, uh, the scriptures, the Bible, that we would have a clear understanding of Jesus, of who he is, of what he's done, of what he has said, and ultimately what that means for us. Father, I pray because your word uh, will have been spoken, and I pray, God, you give me the ability to speak it with a, a level of clarity and sincerity and passion. God, that because of your word, it would make a difference in who we are and how we live, how we engage you and how we engage the world around us. God, thanks for this story that we're going to find ourselves in tonight, the story of these friends, a man who's paralyzed. So God, would you please uh, speak to our hearts, engage our minds in a way that would be clear, that would make sense, we would understand. And God, I pray that uh, there would be a difference in who we are tonight and as we would leave this place. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you have a Bible, I have to stop saying we're giving these Bibles away because we ran out and they don't make them anymore. So um, we'll have to find some more. But uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark uh, chapter 2. It is the second gospel in the New Testament. First one is written by a guy named Matthew. And then we come to Mark. And we are in chapter 2. And this is a great story. And I hope as we go through this picture... I don't know if you think in images, but plant yourself as a fly, so to speak, on the wall. And imagine the sounds and the sights and the people of what it must have been like to be in. This isn't a house. That's the setting of this story. It's not in the temple. It's not in some big space like this. It's in a very small, crowded house. It's a great band from the 80s. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, this was like his his place where he, uh, his home was, so to speak. He was doing a lot of ministry in Galilee, and now he's coming to the place of Capernaum, and this was the place where he would reside. So it says, uh, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come here, uh, had come, uh, come home. I'm not sure whose home that Jesus is in right now. Most people say it was either uh, Peter and Andrews or some other folks I don't know whose home it is, but Jesus has come and is staying at someone's home. But what's really cool is when Jesus shows up, so does a crowd. Now, I don't know how you operate in your home, in your condo, your townhome, an apartment, uh, wherever you live, but typically, home is like sacred, right? It's like we're supposed to get refreshed, where you're supposed to just find a place of rest, where people leave you alone. Like you walk in and you can just kind of shut the world out. You don't have to answer your phone. You, you can just be in your home and find a place of rest. What I love about Jesus is in this home, in this space here, he's available for people to come into and enter into his home. Now, as we go through this gospel story, not just this story tonight, I'm personally, I want to be like Jesus in every possible way that I can be. And so when I come across even little details of a story here, I want to be like Jesus. So if being like Jesus, and this, this is totally a side note, but it's just to say, are you available in your home or is your home something you guard? No one is allowed in, so to speak. And I just wonder, obviously you'll hear the message, you need to guard and protect your space. But I, I wonder if that's said so much that, uh, we're guarding and protecting against people, and we're no longer available. And I wonder if Jesus said, folks, I'm shut down. 
I'm not, like, we're not doing it here. We'll start again tomorrow. I'll meet you down at the, the shores of Galilee. Well, this guy would have missed out on true transformation. It's a side note, but I just wonder if we would be people who would be just more available. Mark 2, verse 2 goes on. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. This place is absolutely packed. And Jesus, what is he doing? He's talking about God. He's engaging people with the Old Testament and telling them stories of who God is and how he's operated through time and through history. Telling them people of uh, great heroes of, of their stories of who they were and what he had done. I love that when people gathered in homes, what took place was Jesus broke out the word and started talking about God. I remember I was in the Congo. This was, I guess, like five, six years ago. And I was doing some uh, teaching at a, a seminary. And one of the guys in the class that I was teaching came up after and said, hey, I'm having a birthday party and I would love for you to come to my birthday party. This is all through translation, obviously. And I'm like, you have to kind of say yes to everything because, you know, you don't want to offend so I'm like, yes, I would love a birthday party in the village and in, in the Congo. And I had no idea what I was getting into. But I go to this guy's place where he's living, and it's, it's not a house. It's uh, some, some mud walls and, uh, you know, uh, much like a, a, kind of like a straw hut almost. And probably 40, 50 people at this party. And we're all kind of just sitting around, and people are talking. I've got my translator sitting next to me trying to help me make sure I don't do anything stupid. And all of a sudden, it gets real quiet in the room, and I notice that all eyes are looking at me. And I'm like, well, it's probably because I'm white. I'm the only white person here. And then I'm like, well, it's now a deafening silence. And I asked my translator, did I do something? Did I say something? And he's like, no, they're waiting for you. And I said, what do you mean they're waiting for me? And they're, well, they want you to preach the word now. And I was like, you mean like, preach like with my Bible? I thought this was a birthday party. You guys do that kind of thing at birthday parties? I had nothing like, you know, prepared. And they said, no, they're just so hungry to hear someone who knows something about God talk about God. And I was, I've never forgotten that. We gather people in our homes all the time for parties, for movies, for so many different things. And we've got this section where we call Bible studies where I do Bible studies on a certain day of the week, but that's the only day of the week. And I wonder what it would look like in our homes if there was just talk of God going on. And I know the response might be, well, people aren't really interested in that. I'm talking about people who you would consider just non-religious. They don't care about spiritual things. And you'd say, they, no one would be interested in that kind of thing. And I'm like, well... Maybe it's us who's really not interested in doing that. I'll never forget, they don't know much about God, and they think you do, and they just want to hear. And so we had about, a, at this birthday party for three hours, we talked about God for about two and a half hours. They were so hungry to learn. That's the Congo, but people are the same. I honestly believe the people in your world, they want to be engaged with something that's meaningful, something that's significant, something that's greater than 24 or Lost or any other TV show, any other movie. I know I'm not popular now because I just said that. But there is more to life than our parties and our movies and our TV shows. He preached the word to them. Story goes on, and now we meet these, these friends. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. Okay, no jackhammers were used in this story. These guys climbed up on top of the roof, and literally the roof would have some, some things that look like this, a bunch of sticks and a bunch of dried mud. These guys get up on top and start digging a hole in the roof. What I love is a few things. Jesus just seems to be okay. He doesn't look up and start like, uh, I'm sorry, I'm preaching a message right now. You're disturbing me, you're distracting me, and you're getting in the way. Something about Jesus, he just looks up, and he just 
is okay with being distracted or with being interrupted. You're going to find throughout the gospel story, Jesus is interrupted all the time. And what I love about it is, yeah, Jesus has an agenda, but he doesn't mind when people interrupt his agenda. How often we have an agenda, and when people get in the way, agenda takes priority over people. Jesus does not roll like that. He was preaching, but something happened. It was a God moment. Someone is digging a hole in the roof. And Jesus is wise enough to say, well, this is kind of curious. Let's see how this plays out. He's just okay with being interrupted. And I love that these four guys, you're going to notice, they say nothing. There are no words recorded. It's what their actions communicate their heart. They have no voice in the story. What makes a huge difference in the story is not what they say, but what they do. There are some people who see obstacles. And then there are people who create opportunities. These guys could have bailed and said, dude, we'll have to come back another time. Maybe next week, maybe next month. There's just, what are we supposed to do? There's nowhere to go. There are people who live life and they just see only obstacles. But then there are people who create opportunities. There was no hole in the roof. They made the hole. And I would love to know which one of the geniuses was like, hey, we could dig a hole in the guy's roof. What do you think about that? They had to come up with some type of pulley rope system to lower. I mean, they didn't just like throw him down on the mat hoping, well, his legs are already busted, so what's, you know... <laughs> Maybe there was like an engineer in the group who concocted this idea, but there was no hole. They created a space, meaning they would not let something like an obstacle get in a way, get in their way of what ultimately mattered most. Five friends, one who could not walk. And so these four guys said, we will carry you we will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Friends who will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And they just had this belief. If we just get him to Jesus, we believe that he could and he probably will do something. I don't think they had much of a plan. After they dropped him through the hole, it was all up to Jesus now. But they just had this unwavering faith that just said, if we could just get them there, Jesus will somehow take care of the rest. Every reason to turn away, but they were relentless in their commitment to get their friend to Jesus. You ever walk around downtown uh, and just sit with a homeless person? I mean, it's amazing the looks of people who walk by. They give you those looks like, what are you doing with that guy? Like your rep starts to drop real quickly. There were so many reasons why these guys should not have done what they've done. Like carrying a paralyzed guy through town. And by the way, the stigma was he's paralyzed because he's sinful. So obviously it's his fault. He's done something wrong. And now we're associating with him. But somehow they didn't care. I don't really care what others are going to think. I care more about getting this guy to, to see Jesus. They were working their way through the crowds only to find their house, this house overflowing. Again, not an obstacle, but they created an opportunity. And I wonder, why didn't anyone else in the house just say, hey, let's make some space for this guy? Why didn't anyone in that house, it had to be at least 50 to 75 people, Say, this guy can't walk. Can we please make some space? Bring him to Jesus. Well, I could give you an answer. Maybe they just didn't care. Or I could say, maybe they didn't want to deal with the distraction because they were so consumed with, I want to get something out of this for me. They were blinded to this individual who had an obvious need. And what I love about these guys was, well, fine, we won't go in the front door. We'll find another way. And how much more distracting it was 
when they dropped him through the roof. What I love about these friends is the focus was on him. It was so other-centered and not self-centered. It's not what have you done for me lately. It's what have I done for you lately. There's such a difference in friendship between a self-centered relationship and an other-centered. Have you ever been in those? Where the relationship is just all about you. How is that relationship working for you? I'm going to guarantee it probably is not going that well because most people don't want to deal with someone who is just so self-centered, so self-focused, they can't see anyone else. These guys were so other-centered. And they didn't quit. I love that they didn't quit or roll over or walk away. And they had a sense of urgency. You have a sense of urgency with friends. For them, we have to get them to see this guy. We have to get him to see Jesus. I don't care how we do it, but we're going to do it. There was a sense of urgency that they had. I like it this way. Friends willing to make holes. Do you have any of those? Friends who are willing to dig some holes with you and for you. I don't know about you, but those are the kind of friends that I want in my life. Okay, friendship in the 21st century is pretty complicated. Some of you can say amen because you're like, yes, it is complicated. We've got now friends, I've said this before, that are more digital friends. We collect them via places like Facebook. We have friends who are just considered maybe our drinking friends. We have friends who we could just consider our movie friends. We have friends that we consider just our blog friends or some other online um, avenue. We have friends that we work out with. We have friends at our workplace, but only in our workplace. We have friends who are our church friends, but only when I see them at church. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed that friendship is not only sometimes complicated and confusing, it's very categorical. I keep this person here, and I'll bring them out when I need them. I'll keep this person here, bring her out when I need her. You know the most disturbing one to me? is friends with benefits. I don't know why that doesn't bother people. We say it so casually, so loosely, and we funny, and it's funny when we hear it, but it's just another category of a friend. I need something, so I'll use them to get what I need. And they seem to be okay with that because they're using me to get something that I need. We have so many different categories of friends. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I want friends that I can dig some holes with and who would be willing to dig some holes with me. Do you have those type of friends? Do you have friends who will make a way even when there is no way? Do you have friends who will take you where you need to go when you can't go there yourself? Do you have friends who have faith for you? We're going to see this in a second. Friends who have faith on your behalf. This paralytic was not void of faith. But listen to what Jesus says. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he looked at the friends and he saw something. He saw in them faith for their friend. It was a faith of if we can just get them here, Jesus will do something. Jesus will act on our, our friend's behalf. Jesus responds, not with spoken words, but he looked at them. And there was a faith that was ultimately very visible. He saw their faith. I've been wondering uh, over the past few weeks as I've been thinking about friendship, this question of when Jesus looks my way, when he looks your way, what would he say to our friends? Because Jesus is about to say something to this guy in response to their faith. So when Jesus looks your way, Eye to eye with you, eye to eye with me. Not what would he say to me, but what would he say to your friends? I wonder if a lot of us with our friends have grown more just frustrated rather than having a great faith for our friends. Or we become just kind of more in, indifferent or apathetic than actually having a love 
these guys must have had a love, a deep love for their friend that really fueled their, their faith. We long to have these meaningful, I don't know, hole-digging, faith-filled type of friends, but we really struggle to be that person. Why is it we so long to have these meaningful relationships, friendships, like meaningful friends, the type that dig holes for you and that you can do the same for them? The desire is there, but desire doesn't always translate into reality. Now, what's incredible about their type of faith here, these friends that this guy had, look what Jesus says to this guy next in the story, chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm sure there must have been someone, enter confusion, right? I'm sure there must have been someone in the crowd who would be like, Jesus, I really hate to state the obvious, but the brother can't walk. I'm not sure if you had an, another plan, or, but he just wanted to point out to you, Jesus, he can't walk. So I'm sure it was nice that you said that, but that's not why he is laying in front of you. Now, there's obviously some confusion of why Jesus would say that. And I'm going to guess that there's some mounting frustration. We just dug a hole through some dude's roof. Probably going to have to fix it and pay for it. Just humiliated ourselves in front of all these people. And what we wanted Jesus to do is not even happening. Your son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine if you go to the doctor, right, for whatever your ailment might be, whatever your disease might be, whatever is broken or busted. You go to the doctor and he or she says to you, with a smile, mind you, your sins are forgiven. Is there anything else I can do for you? They came to Jesus because they had heard his reputation. He healed people. What would you do if you went to the doctor and he said that to you, well, most of us would be shocked, but most of us would be pretty frustrated of, I wasn't looking for that. Something in me is broke or something needs to be cured. You're a doctor. Do what doctors do. Jesus, you're Jesus. Do what Jesus does. And this is what I love about Jesus is he does exactly what Jesus does. Jesus speaks uh, to the spiritual before addressing the obvious, the physical. I remember last year I got really, uh, I got hit, it was in a car accident, got really messed up in my back, had 10 slip discs. I was so focused on my physical that I was neglecting my spiritual. I couldn't think of anything else except how much pain I was in and that I would never get to play golf again. <laughs> That's, I mean, I was, I was so focused on what was physically busted in me that after literally a few months of being so focused on my physicality, I noticed that my spirituality had taken a turn, not for the better, but for the worse. Jesus is concerned about our physical well-being, our physical condition. But I'll be honest with you, he is so much more concerned with your spiritual condition. Jesus says one thing. He says, you, your sins are forgiven. Why does he say that? Well, first of all, because he can and because he does. And only he can. And then secondly, he realizes something that we often forget. And I've said this, our physicality matters to God, but not at the cost of your spirituality. Before Jesus can tell this guy, I want you to stand. He says, I want you to have a soul that is right with God. I don't know about you. Physically right now, I'm in good shape. I can't imagine what it would be like to be paralyzed, to be blind, to be deaf, or to have any other physical disability. I can't relate. But I do know one thing for certain. I would rather limp into heaven 
go into heaven blind, go into heaven deaf, or with some other disease. Literally roll my way there, knowing that my soul is right with God. Then walk into eternity, separated for, from God forever. I don't know how you sit with that, but I honestly would rather roll into heaven blind and deaf and dumb, at least knowing that my soul was taken care of. I was at peace with God. Then have my vision, have my hearing, have my mind, have my legs, and be able to literally run into eternity, separated from God forever. Why does Jesus address this issue of sin because that was the most pressing need. The man needed to get right with God. He needed to have his soul restored, reconciled. He needed to experience forgiveness of sin. And that's the healing that humanity needs most. It's not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And Jesus offers us that. I just want you to hear these words. Your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future, your sins, not just the sins of humanity, you personally. Let that just resonate in your head and your heart. Your sins are forgiven. You could have one of two responses. What are you talking about? Sin? I don't sin. It's that Pharisee that's in all of us that says, I am not a sinner. I'm actually annoyed when people call me that. I pray that you would never let something like pride stand in the way of you having peace with God both now and forever. Or you could have an attitude that says, thank you. Jesus, thank you for doing for me what I could never do for myself, and thank you for saving me from trying. And what I mean by that is how many people work their way towards trying to impress God or please God and Jesus says, just hear those words. Your sins are forgiven. It resonates with me. But I know with some religious people, as the story goes on, it really ruffled some religious feathers. It really irked them. That's as strong as a word I can say sitting in the chair. Goes on in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, these were the religious Pharisees, leaders, pastors, priests of the day. Their job was to protect Scripture and make sure that no one was being a blasphemous person. No one was being heretical in what they said, what they did, how they lived. And so they are right to have this question in their heart and in their mind. Who is this person that can say such things? Because to say something like this is heretical. It's blasphemy. It's putting yourself in the place of God. So either the question is, either Jesus is a heretic or Jesus is doing something greater. He's beginning to reveal himself to people. He's beginning to reveal who he actually is by declaring God's forgiveness. Now, there's a I can tell you, your sins are forgiven. You can do the same thing. You can look at me and say, Michael, your sins are forgiven. That's not heretical. That's not blasphemous. Because I'm not the one saying, I'm forgiving you of your sins. That's where we've crossed the line, and this is what Jesus has done. He's not acting as a priest, just offering a blessing to the people. Your sins are forgiven. He's standing in the very place of God saying, I forgive your sins. So Mark chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus is beginning to reveal himself. I want you to keep this question in mind. Is Jesus a heretic or are the words that he's saying actually just beautiful? He's either a heretic or he's God in flesh. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? When I was dating Kyla, our biggest fights always took place when the question arose, what are you thinking about right now? I mean, have you ever had someone ask you that? And it's like, 
Of all the times you choose to ask me that question, why now? All of our fights usually stem from, hey, Michael, what are you thinking about? And then I'd have to make up something to cover what I was thinking about. Then I'd get in trouble for that. What's happening here with Jesus is he doesn't ask the question, what are you thinking about? This is, he says, why are you thinking that? This is where it gets a bit eerie for me. If Jesus knows my heart, the thoughts of my heart, I am not sure if I want that. How about you? Where Jesus will never have to ask you the question, hey, Michael, what are you thinking about right now? The reality is Jesus says, why are you thinking these things? Remember, Jesus is beginning to reveal who he is. Only God knows the thoughts and hearts of men. Read the Psalms. Read the Bible. One verse in particular says this, Psalm 44, 21. He knows the secrets of the heart. Wow. You know what I love about this? You know what's beautiful about this truth? Is that he stays. He knows your hearts, the thoughts of your hearts, and he still loves You don't scare him, no matter how scary your thought life could be, no matter how wicked, deceitful your heart may be, it doesn't frighten him. I love that he stays. He sticks. Isn't this such a picture of grace and mercy and compassion? I know you're thinking that, but I still love you. I know what you're thinking of me, I still love you. I know your doubts and your confusions, your frustrations. I still love you. What a picture of grace. A God who knows our hearts, the secrets of our hearts, stuff we don't even know. He knows and he still says, I love you. Jesus uses what he knows now to ask a very powerful question. Verse 9, which is easier? He's talking to these guys in response to what they're thinking. He breaks out a question for them that he doesn't even give them a chance to answer. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take up, take your mat and walk? So in other words, Jesus is asking this question to these religious geniuses here. Is it more difficult, is it easier to make some theological pronouncement about sin and the forgiveness? Is it easier to talk about theology and the forgiveness of, of sin Or is it easier to provide some empirical evidence or proof that this man's sins indeed have been forgiven? Remember, sin was closely associated with disability. If you're paralyzed, it's because you're a sinner. And so this is what Jesus is asking them. Is this a question of just theological banter? Or are you wanting to see me prove that I can actually say these things. So Jesus doesn't even, he asks them the question and then he looks at the paralyzed man. Verse 10 and 11. But that you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. I can't imagine, like this is, Okay, this is now, all eyes are on this guy. As if like the whole roof coming down, they paid attention to him. But for this part of the story, everyone's been looking and listening to Jesus. Now all eyes are on this guy. What on earth is he going to do? Because I can only imagine he's probably tried to get up a few times in his life, only to fall flat on his face. Every single eye is looking at him. What are you going to do? Someone just told you to stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. What are you going to do? You could have the attitude of, I've tried, it didn't work. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to humiliate myself. As if coming down through the roof wasn't humiliating enough. Because it really comes down to, the one telling you to do this, do you actually believe and trust that he can and will do what he's telling you to do? 
What I love about this guy is he takes a risk. He now demonstrates his faith. And guess what happens? He gets up. He doesn't need to be carried out of the room by his four friends. Mark 2, verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. When he stands, Jesus is answering their question that he asked. He's saying, I have the authority to forgive sins, and I have the power to heal. And Jesus wants us to know that. I am one who has authority to forgive sins. And I also am one who has divine power to transform, to make a difference, to heal the physical. He demonstrates both divine power, divine authority, spiritual forgiveness, and physical healing. So to go back to the initial question, he's not a heretic. He demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his authority. Jesus is making known, you're right to say only God can forgive sins. And today, in this house, God was in your presence. God in flesh. He didn't say they were wrong for asking that question. He's saying, you're right. I'm going to affirm that only God can forgive sins. That's why I am forgiving this man's sin. And I have the authority to transform spiritual as well as physical. It's, uh, I've been excited to share this story with you for months it's one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark. I love these friends. I love their faith. I love that the guy had the courage to stand. I love what Jesus said to him. I love that he dealt with his spiritual condition first. He dealt with his soul. And then he dealt with his legs that were broken. I love that in this story, Jesus is the hero. That Jesus wins. I love that Jesus knows hearts and minds and still says, I love you. I'm going to give you four new F words to put into your vocabulary. And I want you to remember these. I was trying to think of, how do you close a story like this? And these are the F words that came to mind. Friends, they're so part of this story. If you want to have a relational ethos, where you dig holes with people, and people are willing to dig holes for you. That's created. If you really want that, then start creating that in your life. Start being that, the very thing you desire for someone else. How? That's always the question. I would love to have that type. I want those four guys in my life. How? I know for me, I've needed to surround myself with not a lot of people, just a few people who are not impressed with me. I want you to remember this. I hope you have some people in your life who are not impressed with you. We love to surround ourselves with people who are impressed by us. But the problem with people who are impressed by you is they're scared to death to tell you what you need to hear when you need to hear it. Because they're so fearful that you won't be impressed with them, you won't like them anymore, or you'll bail on them. The guy who was here last week leading worship, P.W., I've been running with him since 1991. He is so not impressed with me. And I'm thankful for that. And I am not impressed with him. I know him and I still love him. And I love that he tells me what I need to hear. I hope if you are going to have a relational ethos where you dig holes, that you'll start surrounding yourself with some people who are just not impressed by you and who will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, who will love you enough to say, speak truth, but speak it in love, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4. That's the first F word, is friends. The second one is faith. And throughout this story, no one speaks. The only person who has a voice is Jesus. Did you notice that? The Pharisees didn't speak. They thought. The friends did not speak. They did. The paralytic didn't speak. 
he got up. The faces in the crowd were silenced. Faith is visible. You can see it. When Jesus saw their faith, we say we believe a lot of things. We have faith in a lot of things. I just want you to know, faith, you can see it. It's visible. This book is called James that speaks to this. It speaks to this. Friends, faith, a faith that is clearly visible. Third thing is uh, forgiveness. I just want you, you're forgiven. You don't have to work your way to God. You don't have to try to impress God. Just hear those words. You're forgiven. You're a person who's been forgiven of everything, of anything. It doesn't matter how bad you think it might be. You are forgiven. There's nothing that you can do where you would not be forgiven of God. That's who he is. He forgives. That's why Jesus looked at this man busted and broken and said, your sins are forgiven. It's your soul that matters to God. He doesn't ignore the physical. Jesus is a very holistic in his approach. Your sins are forgiven. I, I hope you hear that. I hope that resonates. You are a forgiven person. And the last F word is freedom. This guy, I don't know if he was paralyzed for years, if he was born this way. But when he met Jesus, there was friends who took him there. There was faith of his friends and faith he had on his own. There was forgiveness. And all of that equaled freedom. This guy walked out different. Because he never walked in, he was dropped in. He was free from his bondage. And I know, I understand that you might not have a physical condition ailment. But I just want you to know there's freedom in knowing Jesus. You pick whatever it is. There's freedom. We're not supposed to be slaved or shackled to who we were. When we meet Jesus, there is freedom to live a different life, a transformed life. Friends, faith, forgiveness, and freedom. As I sit with this story, and I sit with Jesus, I pray that you would cultivate friends like that, that you would have faith on behalf of your friends, that you would embrace wholly, completely forgiveness that God has given and that you would live free because you are. If you know Jesus Christ, you are free. It's really amazing in the story. The silence is finally broken. Verse 12, did you catch this? This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. There was already a hole in the roof, but I imagine the praise was so loud, it probably started to lift the roof. There was so much excitement, so much joy over what Jesus had done. That's what broke the silence was praise and worship. Tonight, we're going to finish as we do every week at Genesis and celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. That he lived a perfect life. He was without sin because we're not. And he died a death that we should have on a cross. He was beaten, he was battered, he was bruised, nailed to a cross and killed. But on the third day, he was free. There was no one in the tomb. Jesus was gone. Death did not hold him. We love to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done every single week, to remember what he has done. And we do that by remembering we take the bread symbolic of his body that was broken for us and we dip it in the wine or the juice symbolic of the blood that he shed for us tonight as we finish with communion and we finish with worship with singing i would love to see this roof raised that there would be joy over the relationships the friendships over the faith and the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus brings. I'm not talking about just singing as loud as we can. I'm talking about something that resonates deep within your soul, 
that you just want to let God know, I remember what you've done for me, and I want to give thanks. I do that through celebrating communion. I do that through worship, by lifting up our hearts and lifting up our minds. Father God, I give thanks for this story in Mark chapter 2. I give thanks on so many levels. That Jesus, in his house, welcomed people in. That he brought forth the word. And he talked to people about you, God. I'm so thankful that when a hole was put in the roof, that Jesus embraced that, embraced these friends and embraced this man. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you said sins are forgiven. That you made his soul right. I'm so thankful that despite the the critics, the cynics in the house that day, you demonstrated not only the authority you have to forgive, but the power, the divine power you have, Jesus, to heal. I'm so thankful that that man stood. Father, tonight in this place, might we just remember that we are a people that these words are uttered to us. Our sins are forgiven. Both now, past, forever, future, forgiven. And you set us free. God, tonight as we celebrate communion, we choose to remember who you are, Jesus, and what you have done. God, please, let us raise our hearts and raise our voice in worship because you are worthy of it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.